Welcome back to another episode of Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes host examine the 1985 John Landis-directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. I am Robert Black. You can call me the Professor. Aside from my previous stint here, minutes 26 to 30, you might know me from the Groundhog Day Project, a blog in which for the first year I watched the film Groundhog Day every day and wrote about it. Sometimes you escape the film. Sometimes the film escapes you. For weeks now, others have been talking about Into the Night. I do not claim to be here to dispute or clear up what they may have been saying. But for the record, they were all wrong. I was right. I will be right again. I am here to offer up Los Angeles, a city of dying dreams, for your enjoyment. From the earliest years of Los Angeles's development, writes Jacob Andrew Gessling in Noir Ontology, existing in the fragmented spaces of Los Angeles, the tension between mythic possibility and realistic disappointment has organized the city's cultural identity. In The Dark Side of the Dream, the image of Los Angeles in film noir, Tina Olsen-Lent argues, quote, There is an important ideological dimension in the use of actual American locales as settings for movie narratives, regardless of the obvious fictionality of the film narrative. Realistic and recognizable American settings imply the plausibility of the action occurring within the contemporary American context. Although this is not an obvious problem for some stories, for others, especially those presenting threatening and violent events, the problem of a negative or critical stance toward American society is implicit. End quote. Ed Ogan, Jeff Goldblum, has a job, has a wife, has a suburban home. 11578 Segra Way, Culver City, roughly equidistant from LAX and Marina del Rey, venturing to Hollywood, to Beverly Hills, to Malibu. For someone from a less spread out town, this would be a trek. For a guy like Ed Ogan, this is normal. His world is the urban sprawl of Los Angeles, a place so flat despite its mountains, that everything is measured in travel time instead of miles. How far to the airport? About 40 minutes. How far to Disneyland? Maybe half an hour, depending on traffic. How far to Malibu? Why are you going to Malibu? You got a place out there? Despite Ed's anger, though, he suffers from what Paul Hannum calls in his book The Magic of Groundhog Day, the Groundhog Day effect. Quote, the daily grind of endlessly repeated tasks, mind-numbing encounters with the same people and meaningless activities and conversations. End quote. He lives his life, like many of us, quote, caught up in repetitive economic systems that depend on efficiency, control, and predictability. Most of us have to work to earn a living. While many employees feel trapped in routine jobs, this can be demoralizing and lead to chronic stress and illness. Employees earning minimum wage holding down three jobs just to put food on the table. Their work is joyless and mind-numbing, with little opportunity for creativity. Most of us might not bear such direct pressures, yet we pressure ourselves instead, succumbing to the influence of powerful media forces, corporations, and advertising. Interrupting this quote from Hannum to point out just how many advertisements we see in this film alone. Cal Worthington, Pete Ellis. Ed is working class. 
but spends this movie traveling in places where only the upper crust spend their time. Fancy shops, clubs, hotels, mansions. Back to Hannah. Every day we are exposed to thousands of commercial messages that influence our self-image, values, and aspirations. We live in a consumer society and we are judged by how well we do by its rules and norms. We are working longer hours and commuting farther to make more money to consume more things that we do not need, and crucially, that are not making us happier. We are better off, yet more unhappy, than ever before. End quote. Catching his wife cheating on him was barely enough to grab him out of his funk. He made it out of bed at around 12.40 a.m. last night. He made it to the airport, which is not very far from his house. Probably headed to Vegas, as his friend Herb suggested. But by the time Diana falls onto his car and into his life, it feels like he has tried to change things enough already today. Gonna head home, maybe make it to the terminal next time. To the gate the time after that. His anchor is weakened, but not gone. Plus a chance, plus c'est la même chose. Unlike Ed, Diana, last name withheld, Michelle Pfeiffer, lacks the anchor of the day job, the wife, the house. She used to model, tried to make it as an actress, but judging by these couple days in her life that we see, spends her time bouncing around between the various men she knows. She does not worry much about time. Getting somewhere is not about how long it takes to get there or how many miles are covered. Getting somewhere is a favor, and Diana's life is full of men doing favors for her. Except the film never really pushes her into the corner I may have when I was on this show before. The femme fatale. She is closer to a damsel in distress, except with a lot more confidence and agency. And as several podcasters have pointed out along the way, she has elements of the manic pixie dream girl. But really, she is none of these. She is too mid-80s sure of herself to be a damsel in distress. Too innocent in her manipulations to really be a femme fatale. And arguably, she is not making Ed's life better, like a manic pixie dream girl should. Per TV tropes, which offers up distinctions between all of these, Diana might be closer to a damsel errant. Let me backtrack, because why ever get to the actual content of this dialogue light minute if we do not have to? One aspect of the femme fatale that Diana definitely represents is Gary Morris's take in High Gallows revisiting Jacques Tourneur's Out of the Past. Quote, she embodies post-war fears that women having contributed mightily to the war effort and moved into men's work, might abandon the domestic sphere entirely, and even the most powerful men around her can't comprehend or control the violent forces she represents. End quote. Diana's upheaval of Ed's life is like a metaphor for all women upending the lives of all men. Whether you are a feminist or not, whether you think it is for good or not, it is hard to dispute that the rise of women does not shake the foundations of the patriarchal order. And Diana is exactly that. It is actually a strange angle when Shaheen Parvici, I mean Papas, comes into the plot in the final act because this feminine villain does not fit very comfortably in a story where Diana has spent the film going from one man to another to another being tracked by the Savak men, by David Bowie's mysterious Englishman, by federal agents. Diana is a woman in a man's world, and that world, for our purposes, is Los Angeles. And this is a film noir, however much it is steeped in comedy and mid-80s action romance excitement. Excitement, but often with very little happening at any given moment. TV trope suggests that Ed is a pinball protagonist, which was why Jack Nicholson turned down the role. Ed just goes along on Diana's ventures, often reluctantly. When they're sitting on the backlot steps and she tells him what she knows of what is actually going on, he explicitly tells her no, but it does not stick. If Ed were less of a somnambulist 
if he were actively trying to save Diana from all of these other men from the danger of the life she has chosen for herself. For what was only going to get her $25,000, a lot of lives are lost and a lot of property damaged. Of course, Hossie might have been able to make millions off the stones. He was just shortchanging Diana, which is interesting. Diana, as a character, has agency, but she does not have a lot of power. That Hossie was going to give her so little for something that might get him so much reduces her initial power even more. Retroactively, Diana becomes almost as much of a pinball protagonist as Ed is. Something closer to a damsel in distress, or better yet, maybe she is what TV Tropes calls the damsel out of distress. While she cannot fully take care of herself, rarely in this film does Ed, in particular, actually do for her anything that she could not have done herself. So then, what effect does she have on Ed? Is she a manic pixie dream girl? Let's say you're a soulful, brooding male hero. That's me, says the TV Tropes page for Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Living a sheltered, emotionless existence. Me also. If only someone could come along and open your heart to the great, wondrous adventure of life. I am really close on this one. Really, really close. Coined by Nathan Rabin in an AV Club piece about the film Elizabethtown, 25th January 2007, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, quote, exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl is an all-or-nothing proposition. Audiences either want to marry her instantly, despite the Manic Pixie Dream Girl being, you know, a fictional character, or they want to commit grievous bodily harm against them and their immediate family. End quote. Kirsten Dunst in Elizabethtown. Natalie Portman in Garden State. Sarah Jessica Parker in L.A. Story. Zoe Deschanel in 500 Days of Summer, to a slightly subversive degree, Kate Hudson in Almost Famous, Kate Winslet in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and in a much more subversive way, and very deliberately so, Zoe Kazan in Ruby Sparks. She is so energetic and whimsical that she pulls you out of your funk. Buck up, little camper. And your life is better for it, unless it is not. She is a character type that is quite often so recognizable that she is subverted in some way but she is still a simplifying stereotyping character type. Manic Pixie Dream Girl says, let me save you. I want you to get into the deep, beautiful melancholy of everything that's happening. To die by your side is such a heavenly way to die. I love them. Manic Pixie Dream Girl says, have you heard this record? You know what I do when I feel completely unoriginal? But this isn't about me. This is about you and your cubicle job, your white bedroom, your white Honda, your white mother. Love, 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 love. I make a noise or I do something that no one has ever done before and then I can feel unique again, even if it's only for like a second. You guys think I'm a concept or I complete them or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. The convenient thing about being a magical woman is that I can be gone as quickly as I can. Don't assign me yours. And when you are a whole person for the first time, the movie is over. It might be a useful label in passing, but reductive in the abstract. Nathan Rabin wrote another piece, 15th July 2014, Salon in which he says of a suggested listicle that came later, quote, I remember thinking even back then that a whole list of manic pixie dream girls might be stretching the conceit too far. The archetype of the free-spirited life lover who cheers up a male sad sack had existed in the culture for ages. But by giving an idea a name and a fuzzy definition, you apparently also give it power. And in my case, that power spun out of control. In the years since I wrote about the MPDG, I've been floored by how pervasive the trope has become. At first, it was just a few scattered mentions in other critics' reviews. 
Then Zoe Deschanel strummed a ukulele and became a Hollywood it girl, and suddenly the MPDG was everywhere. During one particularly strange day in 2011, I read that Cameron Crowe, the man behind Elizabethtown, as well as almost famous and much else, was asked about the phrase and replied, I dig it. I keep thinking I'll run into Nathan Rabin and we'll have a great conversation about it. This blew my mind. I had been writing about pop culture for a long time, but I could honestly not believe that Cameron Crowe knew my name and thought about meeting me someday. But the more the cultural myth of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl expanded, the more my ambivalence about it grew. Manic Pixie Dream Girl became the title of a young adult novel about a teenage boy obsessed with a free-spirited female classmate, something I only learned about when a reader directed me to the book's Amazon page. The author did not choose the book's title I learned in one exchange with him over Facebook. It was his publisher's idea. I couldn't bring myself to read it. Critics began coining spin-off tropes like the Manic Pixie Dream Guy. Mindy Kaling name-dropped Manic Pixie Dream Girls in a New Yorker piece on female-centric films. And last year, I had the surreal experience of watching a musical called Manic Pixie Dreamland about a fantasy realm that produces Manic Pixie Dream Girls. Sitting in the dark theater, I thought, what have I done? Sure, part of it was that by that point, I had begun to feel a little like a one-hit wonder. But I also realized that I didn't recognize the Manic Pixie anymore. Clearly, labels and definitions are inherently reductive, and if you are a critic, labels and names and definitions are a necessary evil. But it's a particular feature of the fast-paced, ephemeral world of online criticism that writers are always seeking quick reference points to contextualize their analysis. So the rise of the MPDG was in large part a creation of the internet, as well. End quote. Regarding the use of the label for the titular character in Ruby Sparks, star and screenwriter Zoe Kazan tells Vulture, 23rd July, 2012, quote, Look, I don't think of her as that. I hope other people don't think of her as that. I think if they do, they're misunderstanding the movie. That term is a term that was invented by a blogger, and I think it's more of a term that applies in critical use than it does in creative use. It's a way of describing female characters that's reductive and diminutive, and I think basically misogynist. I'm not saying that some of those characters that have been referred to as that don't deserve it. I think sometimes filmmakers have not used their imagination in imbuing their female characters with real life. You know, they've let music tastes be a signifier of personality. But I just think the term really means nothing. It's just a way of reducing people's individuality down to a type. And I think that's always a bad thing. And I think that's part of what the movie is about. How dangerous it is to reduce a person down to an idea of a person. End quote. Do screenwriters minimize characters? Of course. Do male screenwriters do it to female characters more than any others? Of course. And it is a problem. The simplistic label, though, is only useful when you do not have time. And if you do not have time to talk about movies, I do not really want much to do with you. My problem with calling Diana a manic pixie dream girl is that she does not make Ed's life better. She might, given some time, but realistically the way she bounces between the men she knows in L.A. over the course of these two days, she is going to bounce right off of Ed, too. Or maybe she will not. Into the Night is not a film that allows much room for growth. It covers too short a window. We met Ed, what, yesterday morning, as this minute begins? He met Diana less than 12 hours ago. Depending on how long Ed actually sleeps when he finally falls asleep at the end of the film, the very last scene is tomorrow morning, maybe the next. We do not know that Ed will leave his wife. We do not know that he will quit his job. We do not know that he will run off with Diana. They will have adventures together and enrich each other's lives. All we know is that right now, in these couple days, these couple hours of screen time, they are here to enrich our lives. They are both our Manic Pixie Dream characters, if you want to be silly about it. I am divorced. My kids are old enough to look after themselves most of the time, keep some food in the cupboards, keep the water and electricity running, and they will be okay. I have worked office jobs, and now I am a teacher. I am the kind of guy who, in a movie like this, would welcome the femme fatale, welcome the damsel in distress, welcome the manic pixie dream girl, not because she might fit those reductive labels, but because she might be able to pull me out of my own. And the gender of any of those labels is not the point. 
Everyday life for many of us is mundane, boring, filled with rote repetition, SSDD and all that. Who wouldn't welcome an intrusion like this? Well, maybe we do not want people out to kill us, but there are levels. I like an LA girl like Diana. And I don't. She's got ambition and she knows who she is. And she needs Ed right now. She needs him, he needs Jack. But she is also the model, the actress. If you want to play stereotypes, go back to that line from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang I quoted back in Minute 27. All that damaged goods talk. Los Angeles is full of them, male and female. Wanna be stars. Hell, I wanted to be a screenwriter once upon a time. Wrote a few screenplays, wrote some novels, short stories, poems. With just an ounce of success to fuel the dream a little longer, I might still be a wannabe whatever. Instead, I podcast. Los Angeles and Apple Podcasts, where dreams go to die. I kid. The previously cited Tina Olson Lent breaks down Quote, six categories of Los Angeles settings used in the film's noir. Residential imagery, topographical imagery, downtown imagery, landmark imagery, not in the downtown area, industrial imagery, and Hollywood imagery. The earliest films noir to use actual Los Angeles locations rely chiefly upon domestic architecture to evoke the city and focus on unique local styles such as the Spanish colonial revival houses and on unique Los Angeles locations for residences such as the beaches and the foothills. End quote. Minute 31 begins on a street. This movie is known for its human cameos, but there are plenty of location cameos as well. The limousine comes around the curve from Bellagio Road to Copa de Oro Road and pulls up alongside 363 Copa de Oro Road in Eastgate, Bel Air, often referred to as the Pink Palace. Dean Martin lived here in the 60s, and if you listen to Sinatra at the Sands, you will hear Frank Sinatra talk about how at Dean's home... Uh, he holds real steadfast the one rule. There's no drinking after dinner. Of course, you don't eat till 3.30 a.m., but there's no drinking after dinner. How the hell can you drink when you land flat on your back in the junk, you know? Then his mother-in-law, Peggy, picks you up and rolls you into the dining room. They also have a big dog who does that. Tom Jones bought the house from Martin for $500,000 in 1976. He sold it for about $6.5 million to Nicolas Cage in 1998. It went on the market in 2007 for $35 million after Cage had severe money troubles, but it is valued as low as ten. It was foreclosed on, but no one bought it. Built in 1940 by Gerald Colcord, the property encompasses 11,817 square feet, including six bedrooms and nine bathrooms. This brick wall outside of the house is all we will see of it in this film. Second 13, doors open. Diana gets out first, then Ed. Notably, he parks a little close to the curb on the driver's side next to Ivy, and you can see Goldblum struggle to shut his door and walk to the front of the car to catch up to Pfeiffer. For the record, you cannot park in this spot today. This is a no-stopping-anytime street. Second 24, we have dissolved to an unknown location. Might even be a set. A brick wall, but not as nice as the previous one. Plants in front of it. Diana comes into frame first and leans in under some branches to check the wall up close. Ed looks around all casual, as Jeff Goldblum does. Diana sighs, turns around, and speaks. Second 30. I know it's here somewhere. Somewhere? Yeah. Her iconic red jacket is mostly unzipped already. Now she unzips the bottom of it. Disappointed. I had to use it once I ruined a silk blouse. Must have been awful for you. He is sarcastic, but not mean-spirited. I'm not even sure Diana hears him, as she spots something out of frame and moves to the left. The camera pans with her. She pushes some vines out of the way of an open storm drain and looks back toward Ed, now out of frame to the right. Excited. There he is. She hardly hesitates. She pushes the vines to either side, ducks down, and enters the concrete pipe. The vines fall back into place and we get a moment with neither Diana nor Ed. 
We might notice his shadow on the vines before he comes into frame, still looking to the right, presumably toward the street to see if anyone is watching. And he then turns and follows her in. Second 51 angled past Diana inside the pipe. Good timing on the edit as Ed is just ducking into the tunnel. Diana waits, looking back toward him. He comes in next to her. She looks around like she is a little disgusted by the grime in here, which is weird since one, this was her idea, and two, next minute she will seem much more comfortable in here than Ed. The camera tracks backward as Diana and Ed walk toward it. Second 56, Diana puts a hand on the wall and immediately pulls it away and looks at it with, again, disgust. Ed eyes Diana but keeps walking, and time runs out for this minute. Once again, I am Robert Black. You may call me the Professor. Incidental music was Some of My Fears by Daisy May, available on freemusicarchive.org under a Creative Commons share alike license. Additionally, aside from a few obvious movie bits, this episode includes lines from the poem Manic Pixie Dream Girl, written and performed by Olivia Gatwood. Check out lemmydrops.com to see all the stuff I have been up to, including the Groundhog Day project, the blog in which for the first year I watched the film Groundhog Day every day and wrote about it, around it, through it, and beyond it. I continued a few more years watching other movies every day, usually with themed months and far too many words. Additionally, I wrote my master's thesis about the invention of self on the internet using my own blog as a through line. You can find the Into the Night podcast on iTunes and Google Play, or check out nightminute.com. Follow at nightminute on Twitter, or join us on Facebook in the King Lives Listener's Limo. Join us again here next time on the Into the Night Minute. Do we thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category. 